Welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm Mark Faulkner, Detroit News Assistant Sports Editor. I'm joined by Ted Colfin, our Red Wings beat reporter. Coming up, we'll hear from John Bacon, the author of The Greatest Comeback, How Team Canada Fought Back, Took the Summit Series, and Reinvented Hockey. But Ted, it's our first podcast since our Red Wings preview. The Wings were the last team to lose in regulation. Five games without a regulation loss, highlighted by Dylan Larkin's defensive play on Victor Arvidsson with that open net, the tying goal by Oscar Sundquist, but ultimately a 5-4 OT loss on the winner by Philip Deneau. Now they've lost two in a row at home against the Devils on Tuesday and last night's 5-1 loss in Boston. Overall, what do you think of year one under Derek Lalonde? They're 3-2-2 in seven games in the tightest division. If you look at the Atlantic standings this morning, Ted, the Bruins are on top with 14 points, but then you've got Florida and Toronto at nine and everyone else has eight points. Buffalo, Ottawa, Tampa Bay, Montreal, and Detroit. It's early, but so far so good in October. I'd be eager to see what your opinion too is, Mark, but I just, you really do notice the talent level here this week, playing a team like the Bruins mm-hmm. compared to what they saw earlier on there with the Anaheims of the world, Chicago, those types of teams, they just, I wonder overall if the talent level is going to be good enough to stay competitive with the likes of Boston, Tampa, Toronto. Um, I mean, you, you, a couple of these people need to get going too, Mark. I mean, well, you know, those the likes Lucas Raymond still looking mm-hmm. for his first goal. Andrew Kopp hasn't set the world afire yet. Uh, the goaltending's been good, but I'm not sure if it's been excellent per se. So you see some red potential red flags here, but no, I mean, it, you're right. It is a tough division, awfully tough division. We kind of, everybody kind of knew that. Mm-hmm. I think Boston's been a lot better than people suspected. But when you look at that roster, goodness gracious, they could be a very, very deep team once everybody is healthy. It'll be interesting. They got the wings. Again, when you play the schedule game, they have a lot of pretty difficult teams coming up here. So we'll see how they look here at toward the end of it. I mean, what's your thoughts so far early on? I think, Ted, one of the biggest questions the Wings will have, this aggressive style of play on the penalty killing. They were 17 of 18 before allowing three power right. play goals last night. They came up with 34 hits last night, 14 in the first period. And there is a direct result when you're playing that style of game. So late in the second period, Adam Ernie's goal, Boston's Craig Smith had the puck. He turned it over because he was double teamed by Michael Rasmussen and Elmer Soderblom. And afterwards, Ted, Ben Sherratt said hitting doesn't come naturally to the team and they have to be more aware to be more physical. They're certainly bigger and better. And in that opening night victory, they had 38 hits, one more than Lalonde's Tampa Bay team averaged all of last year during the playoffs. Again, you can be chasing a team all night and get lots of hits, but clearly this team is playing harder like they did for a while under Jeff Blaschel. I just wonder if they can continue blocking shots, finishing these checks, being on the right side of the puck. Do you think they can catch on quickly to this new style of play, Ted? I think they could. I, I suspect they could. I think they they have the personnel, but 
going back to last night, boy, you're right. I really thought after the Ernie goal, they were in very good shape. I thought they had played really good hockey for 40 minutes. I think it was more mm-hmm. than, I mean, Jeremy Swayman was having a great night in net for Boston, but, oh, brother. I mean, once they got into that penalty trouble in the third period, boy, that Boston power play is just so <laughs> pinpoint, so fun to watch. And and it was just one of those, you know, we, how, 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 how often have we seen that the last several years, just giving up three goals in, you know, 90 seconds or whatnot. And, totally turns the complexion of the game around. I mean, all of a sudden, it was a hopeless evening. Uh, I don't know. We've seen that. We definitely have seen that script before from this (laughs) team here in the last six or seven years. Let's hear now from the team's leading scorer, Ted. uh, Dominic Kubalik signed for two years, $5 million. The former Blackhawk has 10 points in seven games, four goals and six assists. He was blank last night. His 10 points are the most by a new player on the team since Paul Coffey back in 1993. Kubalik credits captain Dylan Larkin, his line mate, his center for his quick start. Obviously, he makes it uh, he makes it easier on, on, on everybody on the line. So so uh, especially for me, uh, I just know that he's a uh, he's always in a good spot. You know, he's he's always supporting. He's always uh, helping out. So. So and especially when I'm in a trouble a little bit, I know that he's going to he's going to be there for me. So so that's that's always good to know. Ted, even there in his answer, Kubalik talks about teamwork, that when he's in trouble, especially in his own end, Larkin is going to be there in your most recent story on Kubalik at DetroitNews.com. You quoted Lalonde, who said he probably didn't give Kubalik enough credit for his ability to skate, to keep plays alive on the forecheck. He called Kubalik a shooter and a finisher. And at 6'2", 190, Ted, he's another big body. He right. has thrown a number of big hits. It's not his game. But what about his upside, even when Bertuzzi and Verona come back down the road? And and how surprised are you that Kubalik has been a big part of this team's fast start? I've been surprised by the start. I didn't, you know, you, you saw last year what happened. He was His production diminished quite a bit, but... You're right, Mark. Quite a shot. I mean, that's the thing early in training mm-hmm. camp, the first couple practices that really stood out. This guy is a heck of a shot. Uh, good, better. Yeah, I agree with a lot. Better skater than I would give him credit for. Thought he was. So yeah, he's been a nice addition. He's been a gem so far early on. Let's see how. I mean, I I don't think anybody suspects he's going to maintain this pace for 82 games, but. Let's see, let's see what type of season he has. Uh, you, you know, it could be quite the fine there. Um, I don't think anybody suspects Verona is going to be back here in the near term at all. Mm-hmm. So I think you can, you're going to be able to find top six minutes for Kubelik here in the near future. Um, but I mean, I don't know. Like we said, like we touched on early on, got to get some of these guys going. Lucas Raymond and Andrew Kopp in particular, well, there's always this, the Philip Zadina factor. <laughs> you really wonder about Zadina going down. I mean, he's had a great opportunity here for a couple games, few games after the Verona and Bertuzzi injuries and whatnot. And let's face it, Mark, I don't know what you think, but I think he's been pretty invisible for the most part. I mean, largely speaking, he just hasn't taken advantage of this opportunity again. Ted, when you look at Zadina, he's last on the team. He's minus three. When he does get chances, he doesn't go directly to the net. His 
Mickey Redmond and Ken Daniels mentioned the other night. And if I see Zadina one more time, Ted, on a shoot-in, he'll go in and like Anthony Manth in the past, instead of making a play or taking a hit to make the play, he'll just simply send it over to the other corner where his teammates have to battle and battle for possession. I'm sure that Derek Lalonde sees those things. And I know the teammates on the ice have to be seeing it as well, that make a play or or take a hit to make a play, but we, we can't do all the work for you. So it's interesting, um, Mark. Somebody sent me in one of the my the regular people that send me emails. Yeah. The way he phrased it was he looks very small out there. Mm-hmm. And I I'd say, I, I kind of look I read that and it's like I went, hmm, interesting. And then when you look at look at him on the ice, I know what he means, I think. He's just very small, ineffective, maybe hesitant, lost of confidence right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just all those things. And yeah, you really do wonder in the long run what kind of future he has here. Um, he has not taken advantage of this opportunity. No, no, he hasn't. Time now for our interview guest. Uh, here's former Detroit News reporter John Bacon, who has written a book on the 1972 summit series between Canada and the Soviet Union. Joining us now is John Bacon, the author of The Greatest Comeback, How Team Canada Fought Back, Took the Summit Series, and reinvented hockey. John, welcome back to the podcast. Last time we talked about your last hockey book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. Why this Team Canada book, though? You joked that it took an American to brag on Canadians' behalf. In fact, your mom is Canadian, so you're Canadian, you're half Canadian. But why should Americans care about one of Canada's greatest moments not only in their sports history, but also in the 155 years of Canadian history. And you've even made the point that this might be the greatest comeback in sports history. Yeah, it's a big claim. I realize that's a lot to chew up, a lot to bite off there. Um, sure. But yes, uh, last year, Mark, uh, we talked about uh, my book about coaching the worst high school hockey team in America. And now we're doing a book on the best team ever assembled. So that's, I've covered Alpha to Omega in about <laughs> one year. So. <laughs> And, and believe it or not, so far, the worst high school hockey team is outselling the Canadian one, but we're getting there. We'll, it'll get there in time. Um, so why an American? You are correct that uh, my mom is Canadian. I'm a dual citizen. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I'm half, you missed the joke, though. I'm half Canadian bacon. There you go, Falkner. Half Canadian oh. bacon. <laughs> yeah, see, that a rim shot, Coffin. Uh, yeah, I know. They, they, they don't get better either, I hate to tell you. So um, this happened when I was on my book tour in 2017 for my previous book, The Great Halifax Explosion, uh, which very few Americans knew about, but hopefully more know about it now. And um, I was in Toronto and they asked me to meet beforehand um, to, to meet for dinner and talk about some stuff. So, okay, fine, sure. And while we're there, they actually pitched me on the idea of writing a book about the Summit Series, which came out of nowhere to me, but they liked Halifax. They liked my first book on hockey on Michigan hockey. Um, and read some other stuff, I guess. Uh, so that surprised me. I said, I'll think about that. And then Pat Stapleton, who's a star in that team and for the Blackhawks, out of Sarnia, by the way, not too far from us. Um, he, uh, he came down to Ann Arbor for a weekend with Red Berenson, who was on the team uh, before he coached the Michigan hockey team, of course. And we spent a weekend watching hockey and long talks over long lunches uh, about how it all might work. But the biggest thing I got out of it was they wanted somebody to tell the story about the whole team, not just the big goal. Mm-hmm. Of course, Paul Henderson's not just the politics of it, which many books have already addressed, Cold War stuff, you, you know, Canada versus the Soviets, um, but the team itself and the whole team. And I said, okay, if that's what you want, I need two things. One, access. 
And they said, everyone's going to talk to you for as long as you want. I said, okay, okay. We'll, we'll test that theory. Um, and then they also said that, uh, I said, what about, you know, I need editorial control. It can't be, I'm not writing a brochure. Um, and they said, complete editorial control. And that's, as Ted knows, as you know, Mark, man, that's a writer's dream and we don't get too many of those. So uh, the, the payment between us was uh, less than usual. It's Canada only being published there. Uh, but it's too good an opportunity to pass up. I, this is one of my first sports memories. I was eight years old when this happened. I just started playing squirt hockey in Ann Arbor. And my buddy, Scott Childs, and I, whose dad played goalie for Red Berenson at Michigan um, on his team, we'd run home from school and turn on CBC out of Channel 9, CKLW Windsor. And we watched the last four games in Moscow that way. So uh, for me, it was a great opportunity. And, you know, we're all beyond being starry-eyed about our stars and all that. But what these guys did is just so, if you had a chance to write a book on Jackie Robinson and Robinson will talk to you, I think you'd do it. <laughs> and that's how I felt about this. This is an unusual moment, which I think I've argued is uh, the most important, I think, in Canadian history. Because Confederation, when they became a country in 1867, um, that was not finalized until 1982 when Canada gets its full independence. That's 115 years. That's a slow train. Uh, World War I, World War II are obviously more important. I'm not arguing otherwise. Uh, right. But those are shared sacrifices and shared triumphs. This was Canada's alone. It's live. It's on TV. The whole nation knows it. And 85% of the country was watching it. And Alan Eagleson, the old agent, famous and infamous, uh, had the great line, 85%. What the F were the other 15% doing? <laughs> hey John, can you even imagine the pressure that these guys felt? No. <laughs> I mean, talking to those guys, I mean, what did they say? I mean, did, you, did they kind of feel the weight of the world on their shoulders? I mean, let's face it. I mean. Well, and that's one reason, back to Mark's question about why should Americans care about this? If you care about hockey, sure. and if you listen to this podcast, you care about hockey. This created the modern style that everyone plays now. And mm -hmm. they created that in a week, basically, uh, during their time in Sweden for two games. Harry Sinden realized we can't beat them our way. So he designed drills, and you couldn't cross the blue line until he blew the whistle. Had to do it Russian style, regroup, 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 no more dumping it in. Um, they had to reinvent the game live, basically, and it worked. And Wayne Gretzky gave me one of the best quotes. He said, look, without this team, there are no Edmonton Oilers in the 1980s. We don't have Issa Tikkanen. We don't have uh, Yari Curry, and we don't play this style. Mm -hmm. And he and Messier were both 11-year-old kids. Messier wrote the forward, God bless him, mm -hmm. um, that this changed their view of hockey forever. And Herb Brooks told me that you know he'd just become the Minnesota coach in 1972 when this happens that he figured out that's what you have to beat. And he's the one who figures out the hybrid system also, before most of the NHL did. So you see the Red Wings in their heyday in the 90s and the 2000s, that's what they were playing. They're playing this hockey. Uh, and then as far as the pressure question, that's another reason I would hope an American would want it. Just the sheer drama of it. What George Will said about Jackie Robinson, forget sports, this is one of the great dramas of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true here. Uh, it's not race, it's obviously not gonna change the world that way. Um, but in terms of the, all Canada's identity, the yeah. national flag was six years old. Imagine that. We had the stars and bars, you know, the stars and stripes from 1776 on, obviously. So the identity is new. Um, they didn't really feel much of it together, French versus English and so on. And they're waving the flags and they're way into it. It's the Americans in 1980 chanting USA. 
and the pressure they felt. It's a reason why Ken Dryden said, you know what, I won six cups. They should rank ahead of this. I didn't play that well. I got bombed the first two games, played great the last two games. Uh, he said, I've never been so high, never been so low in reverse order, basically, so low and so high. And yet this thing has grabbed my attention more than all the six cups combined. That's got to get your attention. When Yvonne Cornway with 10 cups says this is the closest team he's ever been on for six weeks, that's wow. got to get your attention. Um, so this has stamped them forever and stamped hockey. And across the border, ask any Canadian about this. They'll tell you all about it. Was there a player or is there a player that doesn't get enough attention from this tournament, from the work they did in that tournament? That's a great hockey question, Coffin. Uh, so <laughs> learned from the best. There you go. It, yeah, how about exactly. that? <laughs> um, but uh, I've not heard that one in my various interviews. Great question. I got to think out loud here. I would say one, the defense in general, because the offense had the Hall of Famers on it. Um, the defense was lighter in that regard. It, uh, but you think about it, those guys, it's the defense that had to adjust more than the forwards did. The defense had to make the, the transition to the wider zone, of course, in Moscow, the different style, tic-tac-toe passing. So I'd say the defense in general, and then I would say the Bobby Clark line. Now, Henderson gets a ton of attention, yeah. but Clark gets less, and Ron Ellis, people can't even name him on that line. And Ellis is the one who checked Karlamov, their best player, uh, Valerie Karlamov, um for uh seven of the eight games the last seven games keeping him to one goal the rest of the way in so underrated ron ellis red berenson i remember talking to scotty one time just talking about Scotty bowman that is yes thank you um and then just asking just going over all the great players he's coached and he mentioned i didn't know where i did i forgot to include him and he had mentioned Red Berenson. Huh. And I think people underestimate or just f- forget how good of a player he was. I mean, just talking to Red, I mean, what was his feelings on that series and whatnot? That's, and by the way, as we both know, Bowman does not suffer fools very gladly. I can't recall him <laughs> saying anything for PR purposes ever. Mm-hmm. And you've dealt with him many years more than I did. Um, he is one of the most immune to that, to that issue than anybody I've met. So from him, he meant it. And that's saying a lot, especially mm-hmm. when you consider the rack of hall of famers he's got with multiple rings in Montreal, mm-hmm. um, that's saying a whole lot. So mm-hmm. he does not get, I think the respect he deserves because he played for so many teams in an era where that was very rare. He was one of only four or five players who had been traded multiple times before the summit series. The vast majority had never played for anybody else, which is one of the problems they had in becoming a team. Um, but one reason why he's a journeyman is not because of his play, because he was a smart guy. He's almost always the president of his team's NHL PA organization. And for a while, the president of the NHL PA, or the, the player representative for that. Uh, and owners didn't like it. <laughs> so owners kept trading him. Um, that'll do it. Um, Red was a great two-way player. In an era that still cared about that a great deal, no question. And in this series, the first game, they get blown out, and he's part of that, 7-3. to three. But he plays again in game six. It plays a very good game. He's plus two uh, in scoring chances, according to Evan Hall, who's the videographer and analyst at Michigan. Uh, that was a cool idea, by the way. Um, including a great no-look pass to Ivan Conway in front. They win that game three to two. Without that, you don't win the tournament. So they all counted. But after that game, the reason he's held in such high regard by the guys on that team 
after that game, he goes to uh, Harry Sinden, the coach, and say, look, if you put me in, I'll play, and I'll play fine. I said, but right now, you have to go with the guys who are in game condition. I've not played in five games, and I'm a little off. I'm 10% off, wow. and, we, and we can't have that now. And you can see him already becoming Coach Berenson, basically. That, and when I told Paul Henderson this, who scored, of course, the last three game-winning goals, he said, uh, uh, that's what a team guy does. That's what a smart guy does. And he added, it doesn't surprise me. So uh, Red's contributions were might have been more off the ice than on the ice, including when he came down from the stands after game five, a brutal loss. Um, they're up four to one. They lose five to four in the third period. And he said, look, we're playing better than they are. We just got to keep it together for the third period. And Alan Eagleson again said, normally a guy comes out of the stands to talk to you and F you and a few other things. And Alan used the real word, by the way, um, as they all tend to in this book. But, uh, <laughs> but Red had the respect, and they all listened, and they all believed him. And that's when the team then won the next three games. John, you mentioned uh, Evan Hall uh, from the University of Michigan. You gave him some money to look into analytics each game, each player. What did you learn from Evan Hall? The Russians hung on to the puck a lot longer, regrouped, so they would have better puck possession numbers. Whereas Canada forecheck, you even have a line in there too about how after game one, that seven, three loss that Harry Sinden and John Ferguson decided the Russians aren't shooting from the point. So the Canadians didn't have the wingers uh, come out to the point, man. And they went down low to help out. And that was like a subtle change, but I'm wondering about Evan Hall's contribution and what you learned about analytics. Certainly it's a huge topic now, but what did he discover? Uh, well, a few things. One, the Harry Sinden move, Almost always, wings cover the defense in your own zone. Centers in front of the net with the defenseman three on three, basically down low. Mm -hmm. And they switched it. Um, they put the center, the wingers down low, and the center up high, covering two defensemen. Um, that is a big time move. And you're the first guy to pick up on that one, by the way, Mark. So well done. Um, that one doesn't work, and you lose game two. That is totally on you, and you're basically screwed. You're zero and two with four games left in Moscow. Um, so that was a big boy call right there. Um, but as far as the analytics go, um, I forget who gave me this idea. Um, but, uh, but we called Evan Hall and he could have charged me a lot more. I know that <laughs> than he did because <laughs> he's a hockey fan too. And I gave him the eight game set and I said, you know, use your mind on analytics and see what you come up with. And you guys know the difference, of course, between shots on goal. It's a pretty creaky stat in many ways. If I flip one in from the far blue line and it bounces and hits the goal, that's a shot on net. And if you and I are in a two on oh and I shoot wide, it's not a shot on net, but hell, what's what's more dangerous? So scoring chances is the more subjective term, which you have to have a guy like Evan to figure, you know, you guys can do it, but you have to really know hockey to pull that one off. So what is a scoring chance? What isn't? The key is you need the same guy doing the data in all in all eight games or else you get different different results. Um, but he discovered that uh, and scoring chances then plus minus and scoring chances, all kinds of stuff. He figured out pretty quickly uh, that, for example, Rod Sealing, who's a you know all-star defenseman for the Rangers, they almost won the Stanley Cup that year. He's first class. He was not built for the big rink in Moscow. He couldn't. They're too fast. Mm -hmm. So he was getting burned on scoring chances. Whereas Serge Savard was fantastic at that, and he wasn't a Hall of Famer yet. Um, Ronnie Ellis, as I said, was great at this, and a 50-goal scorer like Vic Hadfield was getting burned. Um, so he broke it all down, and it's fascinating how he did it. So each game we got at least a paragraph from him basically breaking down what, what it looks like today. The brilliant thing though, what I found so amazing is mm -hmm. Harry Sinden and John Ferguson, two old school hockey guys with, uh, with, you know, no analytics and they get got a videotape, but that's all they've got. 
they figured out all this on their own using their eye, eyes, their brains, and their guts. And they made almost always the right decision based on modern analytics 50 years later. Those guys knew what they're doing. Did you, do you feel this is the best hockey ever played? Or, I mean, the, the t- level of talent is amazing. I mean, is, is, was this series about as good as it got or gets? I'm best hockey ever played. It's right up there. Uh, there are a few Canada Cups that would be right there yeah. as well. Uh, I think 87 was one of the years that, you know, Gretzky, yeah. uh, Gretzky, of course, Lemieux and others playing great hockey. But I, for my money, it is. And granted, I wrote a book, so I'm clearly biased here. Um, but for this reason, every shift mattered. And these so were much. all going crazy on every shift. And you play the Canada Cup, you play some lesser teams and you win by five. None of that happened. And they also, this, this cannot happen again. The Canadians knew nothing about the Soviets. It's like the old days, American League, National League, and the World Series is hard to predict. Well, imagine that, but you have not seen these guys even play the game. Mm-hmm. And Jean Martel gave me a great quote. You know, our style of hockey, we didn't know we had a style. <laughs> <laughs> they just played hockey, man. I mean, no one ever drew it up. Um, and the Soviets were built to counter the Canadians. So the stakes involved, the unknown quantity of it all, watching the Canadians adapt to all this and then become a team. For my money, if you had to watch eight games and, and forget my testimony, Wayne Gretzky apparently told me watches all eight games every summer at his place in Idaho. That's good enough for me. Uh, and wow. he's done that for 50 straight years, babe, or 40 straight years, whatever. Um, so, and he says the hockey holds up. It's just great up and down hockey. And like I said, the biggest thing is they don't take a shift off. It's, it's full blast. How did this change Paul Henderson's life? I mean... Hmm. Goodness gracious. I mean, he's going to be remembered forever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, just talk. I mean, how just talk about that. I mean, do you spend, I mean, yeah, did you spend time with him, obviously? Oh, yeah. Uh, all these guys give me at least two hours the first time I talked to him, usually in person. And then, of course, poor SOBs. I kept calling him up for this and that. Uh, so. <laughs> Paul and I talked four or five times. Brad Parker and I talked almost every week because he was my liaison to everyone else. Um, but Paul, was, they're all great. And they're all very different personalities and some swear and some don't. But you know what it's like when you talk to retired guys, they don't care anymore about public perception, about right. PR and all that. This is what I think, is what I feel, print it. And they were great about that. But uh, Paul Henderson's life, this guy was a good, very good often player for the Maple Leafs and the Red Wings and back to the Leafs. I'm sorry, Red Wings and back to the Leafs. Um, but not at the same level of, you know, Bobby Clark ultimately, or obviously Jean Martel, uh, guys like the, the Hall of Famers, Roger Gilbert, um, Phil Esposito. Um, but man, he played the best hockey of his life for one month, no question about it. Reached a, a level that, that no one else was reaching at that time, basically, let alone him. And after he scored the big goal, 34 seconds left, they're down five to three, they win it six to five. He went to the bench and Harry Sinden said, you need to go back on the ice you know, to kill the last 34 seconds because that was the best defensive line they had also. And he shook his head, no, I can't go. All the magic, it's like he turned into a pumpkin. All the magic had left his body at that moment like a ghost, and he knew it. And Phil Esposito saw him in the locker room afterwards, and he said, look, like at age 20 years, and he'd never achieved that level again. He's always, again, very good. Um, no, no knock on him, but it also changed his life for better and for worse, he admits, that the attention was – crazy and it's he played in the WHA in Alabama 
for a little while in Birmingham. That did him some good, actually. But uh, the sign on the door when he came back from his daughters, about 10 or 12, uh, we are all out of autographs. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Hey, John, I look, I thoroughly, thoroughly have enjoyed all your books, all your writing. It's going sideways a little By bit. By the way, mutual admiration study. Likewise, Ted, and I read you a lot more often than you read me. <laughs> <laughs> how okay, how do you pick your topics for a book or how do you go about that? It's like, do you it's like, oh wow, this this would make a good book, or what's the process or what? Uh when you say process, you give me way too much credit. There's no process. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I do have a file, uh, books to write, and you know, it's 20 or 30 long. So I'm gonna die before I get to all that. Um, but, um, also some come to you, this one came to me and I was, I was not planning on this, but I had to make an exception and it had to be now because it okay. had to be before the 50th anniversary. So this is good enough to bump off some other ideas for a while. And I'm glad I did. Um, it's an experience like no other. And I'm deeply flattered as yeah, I'm a dual citizen, but I'm an American. I'm not trying to fool anybody. Uh, my accent, I spell labor with only, with no you. <laughs> <laughs> so we got all that fixed for the book, but, uh, so that was flattering, but um, so I've got a list and then things interrupt it and occasionally things come to you. But oftentimes Halifax, I'd written that down for 15 years before I finally did it. The high school hockey book that Mark and I talked about last year, Let Them Lead, which you also read, which may become a movie, we'll see about that. That was, you know, I've thought about that one for 15 years also. So sometimes the timing's gotta be right and it's not always right now, but uh, this one came, fell in my lap, and I'm, I'm grateful that it did. Finally, John, you said you had access to this book, Editorial Control. Were there any larger themes that you've talked about focusing on the present with all that pressure, like Ted asked right from the beginning? Is there anything else about this book that sort of resonated with you coming off the lessons that uh, you learned coaching your mm -hmm. high school team? But I'm just wondering, is there anything that really stands out to you that says, you know what, this was a book really about this or that? It sounds absurd to make any comparisons between the worst team in America <laughs> <laughs> and the best team arguably ever assembled. There's a debate about that, but this is on a short list for sure. Certainly at the time it was. Um, but the biggest thing I got, and this is the book we wanted to write, um, that I wanted to write, and they did give me control. And, you know, they didn't like everything in it, but they never do. Um, but they, they have said, God bless them, this is the best book on the series, which is the praise I was looking for, basically, uh, more than reviews or anything else. Um, but uh, but is this and the politics have been talked about the impact on hockey has been talked about. Uh, I wanted the team story. The biggest story I thought had not been reported fully hmm. is how do these guys become a team? Because in the old days, and you guys know this system, but a lot of hockey fans don't. If you're you know Red Berenson's drafted at 15 or 16. All these guys were, and you go to St. If the Blackhawks draft you, you're going to St. Catharines, Ontario, and playing for the Teepees, and you play in that system your entire career, and you probably won't get traded. You don't know anybody else. Uh, NHL rules prohibit you from playing in charity golf tournaments with opponents. This is how crazy they are because they believed these nasty rivalries were what you're selling in the original six. And they believed it. I mean, Brad Parks had an all-star game in 72, a few months before this series in Minnesota. And he has a great pass to a Bruin. I think it was Ted Green, one of those. Uh, goes down and scores and it's a big goal. And the guy does not even so much as look at Brad Park. Now, no high five, no like, hey, you. He goes right back to the bench, and Brad says, I wouldn't have expected it, and if he did it, I would have felt awkward. All right, this is how not a team they were. And that had to get broken down for this thing to work. And Phil Esposito said to Harry Sinnott, we don't care enough about each other. That's got to change. And how'd they do it? 
And Brad Park told me, uh, Gila Point's wife had a kid back in Montreal. Uh, so the answer was beer. We all went out to a park with a few cases of Swedish beer and got drunk. And we started becoming a team. <laughs> so that was the chemistry. And the beautiful part is these guys are as close now as, as all their teammates from all those years, which is incredible after being such bad rivals. And I was with them on September 28th, which is the anniversary in Toronto with Yvonne Cornway and Serge Savard. And I'm there, frankly, I'm there drinking with them till two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. And you could see how important it was to them to be together, even now, 50 years later. So to see the, the human side, the, the best comment I got is probably from Serge Savard. He said, this is the first book that shows you how we felt. So they told me how they felt. I mean, that's their credit, not mine. But it's the feelings I wanted to get across more than anything else. And that's the story that if you care about emotions and sports, you don't get many more than this one. John, thanks again for your time today talking to us about your new book, The Greatest Comeback, How Team Canada Fought Back, Took the Summit Series, and Reinvented Hockey. We look forward to maybe another hockey venture down the road. Now back to the rest of the podcast. Our thanks again to John Bacon. And that was Ted, enjoyable, wasn't it, Mark? Well, it really I, I wanted to ask you, Ted, what stood out most about the interview, the book, uh, maybe the greatest comeback ever? And there were lots of Red Wings mm -hmm. on that team, as John mentioned, uh, Red Berenson, Mickey Redmond, Marcel Dion, Gary Bergman. Former Red Wings, Paul Henderson, who we mentioned, Pete Mahalich, Frank Mahalich, they were part of hockey history 50 years ago. I, if you know, if you if you see or know that John Bacon wrote the book, you know it's going to be a very thorough reporting job. And just going through the book, I'm enjoying it right now. I mean, the work and the passion, the the diligentness that if that's a word, the diligence <laughs> right, right. that he puts into it. Yeah. You can yeah. see it, it really comes through. Uh it's, it's an it was an incredible time and a great incredible series. And he John, as usual, does a really nice job of getting of getting that message that time through. Um I don't know. Well, what, what stood out to you about that series, Mark? I know you're a historian that way. I mean, how, how much did you enjoy watching that series? I do remember watching this series as a Canadian growing up in Windsor at the time, Ted, in grade six at an elementary school in South Windsor, Roseland. Like a lot of people at the time, 85% of the people in Canada. Yeah, John mentioned that. That's incredible. Isn't that incredible? We watched the game as students. It was it was down. It was a Thursday afternoon. The series was tied and then Paul Henderson scored that goal. So I could certainly relate to to John talking about being in Ann Arbor watching the game. And he's right. It may not have meant as much here in the states as it did in Canada, but a good story is a good story. And right. Let's move on now and hear from Red Wings defenseman Marit Sider, the Calder Trophy winner from last year. He's off to a bit of a slow start this year. He's minus five in his last five games, only one assist this year. He was kind of turned inside out on the Charlie Coyle goal last night. Coyle came off the bench, but Sider was there, and he also failed to check Brad Marchand. Most of the Wings also had that problem last night on the third goal at the side of the what net. What a talent he is, by the way. What a time. I think, I don't know if it's, I've seen, you know, people generally talking about it, but mm -hmm. he's going to be a Hall of Famer, isn't he, Mark? I mean, I, the way it's pointing to right now, the way it's trending, he's a Hall of Fame player, I think. 
let's just quickly go to uh, Cider to sort of wrap up here. Um, he said that they played well for two periods. In fact, he says they dominated. They uh, played really well on two periods and didn't get the bounces. And then you look at the scoreboard and it's 3-1. Um, we were really, we were really into it in a third uh, one-goal game, and then, um, yeah, just a, a tough breakdown in the PK. But that happens. Um, still had our chances, and uh, if we continue to work on that, I think we'll be a successful team. It seemed like if you had a little puck luck, you guys might have been leading going into the third period here tonight. How did you feel about the way your team played through the first 40? And what did they show you here tonight against an elite team? Awesome. I think we dominated them. Um, and that might be one of the top teams in the league, so we, we should be really proud of that. I think um, if anyone sees that different, um, please explain. But other than that, I think we, we we're on a really good way. Ted, you can hear the confidence in Sider's voice. He says, please explain if anyone saw those first two well, they played. I, don't, I mean, I don't know what you think, Mark. I, I, I thought they played well. I wouldn't say dominated, but right. they did play good hockey for 40 minutes. I don't think there's any question about that, but. Ted, what do you think of Sider's play this year? In one of your earlier stories, Lalonde said they're trying to take the risk out of his game, and they're trying to still allow him to be instinctive to play on his toes. Last year, he had 50 points. Only once did he go six games without a point. This year, he has just a one minor penalty, a season low, 19 minutes against the Devils. He has a new defensive partner in Ben Sherratt. Mm -hmm. And Ted, we've talked briefly about this new system, the 1-1-3 or 1-3-1 where like Victor Hedman in Tampa Bay, Cider can read and react in the neutral zone. I just wonder when will we see Cider return to form? Is this just, this is probably just temporary, of course, because he's still playing well and he's still the best defenseman on the team, but clearly minus five in his last five games. What what are your thoughts on Cider so far? No, I, I agree with everything you've said there. I, 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 I do think there's an adjustment with him. I do think there's an adjustment period. Again, it's as we're so fond of saying, it's it is a small sample size. Let's wait mm -hmm. another couple weeks or give a period of time here. Um, I don't think he's obviously. I don't think he's matched the level he did last year, last season. Uh, I've, like you said, I still think he's the best defenseman on the team. I mm -hmm. expect this to blow over and he's going to play back at return to that level he was last year but i do think with him there's been an adjustment period here with this new system uh let's give it a little bit more time i think that one i'm not for say i'm not concerned about that one and i think cider is going to be just fine yeah absolutely and Ted, uh just finally we did mention the schedule uh they're still at home a lot five of the next seven are at home they've got road games against the sabers on monday and then the Rangers a week from Sunday. I mean, this isn't yeah. like those opening five games. This is going to be, you know, a little bit, a little stiffer test. And it'll be very curious to see where they end, what their record's going to be next time we're doing this. Uh, I mean, they can, if they hold their own, fine. They should be, uh, you know, they'll be right in the thick of things. But you definitely don't want this thing to slide too much longer. I mean, it, things could snowball in a hurry in a bad way. Ted, thanks again for your time today. And that'll do it for episode 78 of our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. You can find all of Ted's stories online at DetroitNews.com, as well as on our Octopulse Facebook page. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, rating, and reviewing these podcasts. <laughs>